The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. It's always good to see some of the longtime community members creep back into the building after the pandemic. So, welcome back. Those of you I haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it's been nice Sunday night. You know, it's just, I think it may be one of the few programs we don't do online. So, sort of nice being in the room together in this way. I mean, the technology's great and it allows, um, you know, that wider community, but it's also nice when we don't have to use it. And I started last week um, this uh, discussion, my sharing some thoughts, and then our conversation at the end of the evening around what in Buddhism we call seclusion. And it's really, as I mentioned last week, it's it's really an essential spiritual skill. And uh, one of the aspects of our you know, ordinary existence as a human being, given that we have a body and a mind, is that uh, just the very nature of having a body and a mind, being sensitive, you know, when we're not completely distracted, one of the things we realize is how constant sense experience is. You know, we're sensitive to the visual field, we're sensitive to sound, we're sensitive to touch, subtle and obvious gross touch, we're sensitive to smells and tastes, and we're also sensitive to thought, to all the different aspects of mental activity. And in a sense, all of that is contact. You know, in Buddhism we use that word sense, contact as if something's being touched. Every time a sight is being seen, a sound is being heard, a touch is being felt, a smell being smelled, a taste being tasted, a thought being known, there's a kind of contact, sense impingement, and it's endless. And one of the things that becomes more clear when we pay attention is with each sense experience, sense contact that we're aware of, there's a subtle or not so subtle response or reaction, right? Oh, I like that sound, or I don't like that sight, or oh, that smells interesting, or that smells disgusting. And then not only that, You know, that, in a sense, is another sense contact. The thought we have about a sense experience is the next sense contact. That thought, when we think a thought, the mind is sensitive to what thoughts are thought, right? It lands too, right? That thought that we know makes contact and then can be the cause for the next thought. Then we have a thought about that thought. So it begins to make sense how stressful 
and at times overwhelming, and maybe most importantly, exhausting it is, to be sensitive. And why so much of what we humans do in life is we look for ways, some relatively skillful, a lot not so skillful, to dull our sensitivity or to suppress sensitivity or turn away from our sensitivity. Yeah? Have a beer. Or even like absorbing into one thing so that I don't have to be sensitive to everything else. Or I don't want to think about work. Or I don't want to feel the pain in my body. So I'm going to knit <laughs> or pet my dog or obsessively watch TV and hope I don't run out of episodes of entertainment, you know. So a lot of, not, you know, always, but a lot, I mean, to be honest with ourselves, a lot of our time we're bringing our intelligence to bear on how, having the life that I have, can I use entertainments and other kinds of distractions so that I don't really have to be here in a sensitive way, being alive. So I am alive, I do have a life, I have experience, but I don't really want to feel what I'm feeling, so what can I do? You know, we pick up our phone, or we, but we find something to absorb into. And like I said, some of those distractions or absorptions are relatively harmless or even slightly skillful, helpful, but a lot of it is just like whatever we can find. Have you ever caught yourself sort of desperate for some something to absorb into, you know, looking for a magazine, or you remember the day when we had magazines? <laughs> a catalog, hang out with a pet, you know, look out the window, check the email again. As if the one thing we want to avoid at all costs is that raw exposure to what it feels like when I'm not absorbed into something, lost in something, paying attention to something in a kind of exclusive way. So this, this is just a setup, you know, what I've described to understand, like, the skill that in Buddhism we call seclusion, where we're skillfully secluding the mind from the exposure that comes from being sensitive. And we humans are just sensitive through these six sense gates, unless the eyes get damaged, or the ears get damaged, or the tongue, or the nose, or the, you know, the tactile experience, or the ability to think thoughts and have be sensitive to mental activity, as long as all that function is operating well, right, we're going to be exposed. And one of the things we can learn is this mental training, right? Instead of just following habit, which is, you know, you can imagine being an animal that we are, you know, in our own way, like even now, instead of looking 
sensing are there any predators in the room? Probably not. But there's a there's already just sensitivity, like even like, is Mark saying anything interesting? You know, there's like uh, one uh, teacher of mine, Ajahn Amaral, he's a well-known Buddhist monk, uh, Westerners from England. He's the abbot of Amaravati, a very well-known monastery in England. And uh, But he once said in a talk, this is way back in the 90s, when he... Uh, was in California running a monastery north of San Francisco. He said it's like uh, the mind has, you know, just this basic interest. Can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? Or am I sexually attracted to it? It's like everything else is sort of not that interesting. Right? And uh, this is just comes with the territory of having a body and a mind, having a life, is we have this sort of animal nature, this to be aware externally. Is there any threat in the room? Anything I want in the room? You know, anybody I'm attracted to in the room. And that sort of, and that sort of basic hunger around like these basic needs. You know, we could probably divide it up a little bit differently. It isn't the only way, but you get the general point. Like there's something, there's a hunger behind the sensitivity. As if, if I'm attentive enough, I will find what I need to fill the void, the sort of existential void I fill in my heart, you know, like the uneasiness. What is it? Maybe you have the answer. <laughs> so, a mind that's like that isn't really good for spiritual insight, spiritual deepening. So, w- one of the reasons that the skill of seclusion is one of the most important early skills to learn is how do we heal that sensitive heart that is exposed to these constant sense impingements, sense contact, always reacting based on my likes and my dislikes to those sense contacts, those sense experiences, right? So we're in this wiry, fragmented, scattered, superficial place. So how do we heal that? And the Buddha, I mean, it, you know, it's just part of our lineage of human wisdom. It, is, it didn't even start with the Buddha, right? People understood this to some degree well before the time of the Buddha even. Where we take the attention and we withdraw it from the diversity of the experiences in the present moment. We tell ourselves, honey... You don't have to be attentive to all that's going on. Why don't you just pay attention to this one thing? Now, we wouldn't do that if we really were under threat, right? We, so we need relative safety. And, you know, it's like back in the day, they might, you know, have a drumming circle or do some group dance or they might, you know, any number of human rituals and, um, cultural, you know, uh, 
just events that humans have come up with over the years, the centuries, where there's we're putting down what we would normally be attentive or sensitive to, and we're gathering the attention around one thing or some experience. And with that focus, that attentiveness to this one thing, then the mind is necessarily not attending to the diversity of experience. Just like what happens when we get absorbed in a book, then we're not attentive to what's going on in the room so much. Or our work, you know, that we didn't do at work. That's out of the mind, because the mind's not attending to it. Or even the pain in our body. I'm sure you've noticed, you know, what is the classic thing to do back in the day when there were CDs, DVDs, right? The classic thing to do when you were about to get sick is you'd go to Blockbuster and you'd get a bunch of movies to blast you for your sickness and you just sort of like absorb into one movie after another hoping you had enough entertainment. By the end of it, you'd be healthy again and you go back to work or something like that. It's like, yeah, I just, I don't mind being sick. I just don't want to be there when I'm sick. So I'll... Now this is, this is part of our meditative training is to learn how to have a vacation from whatever the ordinary activity of the mind is. So we sit down usually, but you can do it lying down, you can do it standing up, you can do it walking. Right? The Buddha taught that we should learn how to practice in all postures, not just sitting. But sitting for most people most of the time is one of the best postures because there's a if we sit the right way, if we're honest with ourselves and sit the right way, then there's a beautiful balance between comfort and alertness, right? We can be relatively alert when we're sitting, especially, you know, you have to be a little careful when you're in a chair, because if it's too comfortable, then that balance between alertness and comfort will be skewed towards comfort, and there will be a lot of drowsiness in your meditation. But if you sit on the floor, but you're not used to sitting on the floor, you might be really alert, but really uncomfortable. And that won't be so good either. So what for you, and it's, you know, you can tell it's specific to each of us, given our bodies and our injuries and our age and all those things, what is the right balance between comfort and alertness when you sit? And so there we are, relatively comfortable, relatively a posture that supports alertness. And then often initially in the meditative training, we choose something in the present moment to be a dear friend, right? We call it our meditation anchor. Commonly it's just the physicality of breathing in and breathing out, and it might be just feeling that movement in your abdominal wall or feeling the touching at the nostrils, or however you can feel the ordinary physicality of the breath. But some people prefer to use the whole body. Some of you who were here last Sunday night, we used breathing, uh, hearing for the whole sit, the guided sit. So hearing, not trying to hear particular sounds, but just the full experience of hearing can also be a meditative anchor. And it's good to choose one because, like I said, 
over time, we wanted to be a good friend, a trusted friend. My mind has learned how to connect and sustain present moment awareness through this meditation anchor. It knows how to be interested in the breath, because that's really the primary um, expression of effort is to be, it's the effort to be interested in the meditation anchor. Not the concept of breath, but the physicality of breath, or the physicality of sitting, or the sense experience of hearing. And you can see, like, in this style of practice, in the way the Buddha taught, we often use experiences that are relatively neutral, ordinary. So it's a real training. It's, it's not going to be natural to be interested in something ordinary, like breathing in and then breathing out, right? Because the mind has a, we may not recognize it, but the mind has a very deep habit to ignore ordinary experience. Like when's the last time you vividly felt and were aware of your shirt touching the skin of your back. Now we are, because you were prompted. But it's an ordinary experience. It's neutral. So we just generally are oblivious to what's neutral. That's just a deep, as deep of a habit as trying to get what's pleasant or get a, away from what's unpleasant. Ignoring the neutral is a very deep and usually unrecognized habit. Like we probably do know the habit to try to get what's pleasant, right? And to get rid of what's unpleasant. You know, if you have a little food between two teeth, you know, it's like so unpleasant. I've got to get rid of it. Who's got floss? I mean, it can totally obsess the mind. And And it's just easier to catch, oh, I'm really averse to that feeling of food in my teeth, or something like that. But neutrality, it's like we're just unaware of neutrality. So we want, I'm saying this because we want to rally a lot of respect and patience and forgiveness. It takes real training to train the heart to be interested and to sustain that interest until it becomes a habit. Last Sunday night, I mentioned the real trick is to realize that connecting and sustaining with the breath, let's say, or something neutral, that there's a pleasure in it. And that creates that feedback loop. That makes it a little easier to sustain. And it's the pleasure of what's not happening. The mind is temporarily free of obsessing and reacting and attending to the diversity of experience because it's just attending to the simplicity of breathing in, breathing in, breathing in, breathing out, breathing out, breathing out. And so it has a vacation from whatever else the mind would be doing. And that vacation, the absence of attending to the diversity of experience and all the reactivity that that would trigger, 
that absence is actually, it's subtle, but it's really pleasant. We don't, it's, it takes a whole new uh, sort of uh, kind of interest. Like, you could, like if I prompt you, like I'm about to, and I think I mentioned this last week, we could really notice the absence, the absence of toothaches. Like, do we have any toothaches right now? Now, normally we wouldn't be aware, or, you know, or that there's no pain at the back of my hand right now. But I could really sense the absence of pain in this part of my body, or the absence of pain in my jaw and my mouth. Or maybe we're not too cold, and we could notice the not being cold. But we tend not to notice the pain, the suffering that's not here. But it's really nice. You know, if we're here tonight, it probably means we're not in dire pain. But to notice that. Or that we're, our life isn't in a terrible crisis. So we all of that we can notice. But we don't, usually. So when we um, train with a meditation anchor, and again, this isn't the only meditative skill, in a way, in a fu- not a funny way, but in a, you know, not surprising way, maybe, it's really the initial skill, how to put down the world in the sense of the diversity of our senses, but how to get a break from that, because it allows for some healing in the mind. Like the mind is, in a sense, put upon by all that exposure and all the reaction and then the reaction to the reaction and the endlessness of that. So to get a real break, a real vacation from that, then then the mind senses the mind when it's not all discombobulated and pushed around and reactive and tight and stressed up. The mind learns how to sense a mind, this mind, when it isn't divided and fragmented. Oh, this mind is whole. This mind is not divided. It's actually, you know, when we talk about samadhi, some of you know that word, it's badly translated as concentration. A better translation for samadhi is something like the stability of present moment awareness or uh, the unification of the mind is another good translation for samadhi. So that coming together of the mind that's not distracted and because we're using a meditation anchor, right? And so there's a continuity of knowing that breathing in is like this, breathing out is like this. It isn't about the sensitivity to the breath. It's about the mind not getting fragmented and divided because of its reactivity and that exposure to the diversity of sense experience, including what we think about things, what I think about Monday, and what I thought about, or what I think about Saturday, what I did then, and 
when I think about what I did on Saturday, you know, then I have a thought about it, and on and on. And that, it, it, uh, it takes the bandwidth of the mind. The mind can't be unified because it's just so much. And then the mind gets identified with that so much. And it, and it sort of loses that sense of wholeness and unity and the pleasure of that non-fragmentation, that non-division. So we really want to get to know that. So like when we do our practice, you know, and we sit down, find a balance between the alertness, the uprightness, and the, re- the release and relaxation in our sitting posture, and then we choose a meditation anchor. You might choose feeling your whole body. You might choose feeling that ordinary rhythm. You're not controlling your breath. Like we do sometimes in yogic practices, this is not a, a breath control. It's not a pranayama practice. Right? We're just letting the body breathe because it's meditative. Right, We're not trying to make anything happen. We're trying to cultivate present moment awareness and we're using the anchor of the breath, the anchor of the body, or the anchor of hearing, you choose one, to keep it in mind. And in really keeping it in mind through the effort of being interested, not a tense effort, like, if we were going to be interested in some simple experience like touching your hand, what is the, what is the quality of that effort to keep touching in mind? Whatever you're touching, just choose some touch that's happening. Because the sensitivity to touch isn't something that you or I have to do. The mind is naturally sensitive to touch, so it's not the effort to feel the touch. It's just the effort to remember that touching is being felt. It's just the keeping it in mind. So it's a very particular kind of effort, and it's very easy to dismiss it. Because it's, you know, in a sense, it's not a muscular effort, you know, a willful effort. It's, it's more of a wise effort, you could say. Like, can I remember this? And why are we remembering this? As a convenient way to get a vacation from whatever the mind would otherwise be doing. So, honey, we're going to put everything else down. And we're just going to use this meditation anchor, meditation object, and we're going to train the mind to be interested in it. And over time, it's this meditation object, this training, is going to become a really good friend for the mind, because the mind will be able to get refreshed from the push and pull of its normal activity. It will learn how to drop it. Just like a really good sleep, you know, and especially deep sleep where you're not even dreaming. And when we come out of a deep sleep, the felt experience is of refreshment. Like, whatever that was, that was good. Right? You know that feeling? That was good. What was so good about it? It wasn't what happens in deep sleep. It's what's not going on in deep sleep. 
for a moment or for those moments, I don't know how long it lasts, but, you know, a while. Not, I think shorter than you might imagine. I forget. Does anybody know? Any doc? Do you know, Mark, how long deep sleep lasts? Yeah, I, I read once, and I was surprised that it wasn't as, as long as I thought, but I can't remember what the number is, how many minutes. Like, I don't think it's hours of deep sleep at night, like if you sleep seven or eight hours. Yeah, that's, I was, yeah, just a handful of minutes. That's kind of what I remember, too. I'm not confident enough to say it out loud, but something like that, yeah, it'd be fun to check it out. But it's clearly impactful to get that vacation. I mentioned this morning when I gave this talk, um, there's a famous Thai Buddhist monk who died a couple decades ago, maybe late 90s, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And uh, he was a scholar and a meditation teacher and a Buddhist monk. And um, he has this little booklet you can find online. It's called Nibbana for Everyone. Some of you know that word, Nibbana, same word as Nirvana. One Sanskrit, one's Pali, two of the ancient uh, Indian languages. And uh, Nibbana for Everyone. And in that, it's just nine or ten pages. You can uh, read it, you know, in 15 minutes. I recommend it. It's really delightful. And one of the things he says in it is, if you didn't have natural ways to touch in to the coolness of the mind that has dropped the activity of greed and aversion, you know, because that's really the problem with sense contact. It's not actually the exposure to sight and sound and taste and smell and touch and thought. It's that all of that sense contact triggers our liking, our disliking, and our ignoring. Right? We like the pleasant, we dislike the unpleasant, and we ignore the neutral. And that's what's actually stressful, is that opinion, that sort of, it's not even personal. You're not even personally liking your pleasant sense experiences or disliking your unpleasant sense experience or ignoring the neutral. It's just the habits, the impersonal habits of our mind. But that identification with those, that process of liking or not liking or ignoring that's heavy. It's stressful. We basically are taking nature personally and feeling discombobulated and beat up and stressed out by it. So when we have that samadhi and the mind, in a sense, turns inward through the use of an anchor, because when I drop the attention to the diversity experience and I'm just paying attention to the breath as an example then eventually the pleasure of the mind, the inner pleasure, which is the spiritual pleasure, which means it's not about a sense experience, it's about the absence of being pushed around by sense experience. So we could call that a spiritual pleasure. Because it's not about what I have or what I'm doing, it's really about what I'm not doing the non-involvement of the mind. And then that actually becomes more and more what the mind is aware of. So like in the normal course of training when you're with your breath or with the body to the exclusion of everything else, then after a while, 
some training, then that wholeness, the undividedness of the mind itself, is in a sense infused with being aware of the body, or being aware of the breath, or being aware of hearing. So it's not just the hearing or the breath or the body, your meditation anchor, it's the absence of the mind getting pushed around that you're also noticing, the pleasure. And we call that the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of non-attachment, the pleasure of dispassion, like the mind that isn't dependent on sense experience. And it has a felt sense. It feels good. And in Buddhism, we also have a term, it's onward leading, meaning when we get a taste of that inner pleasure, inner bliss even, you could say, then the mind, wisdom in the mind senses Like, is this like all those sense pleasures that always leaves me feeling betrayed? You know, it's like you eat some ice cream, it's really good. I mean, really good. Eat a little bit more, it's pretty good. You know, but after a while, it's like, I can't stop myself, but it isn't pleasurable anymore, right? We're just eating it, but it we've gotten to that place where we can't extract any more pleasure from it. But we think, well, maybe one more bite. No. But this kind of pleasure, it doesn't run out. And so, and this is really about the pleasure of samadhi. And it isn't, it's like the pleasure of samadhi isn't even as wonderful as the pleasure of insight, but it's pretty wonderful. (laughs) And it's deeply healing because the mind, the leftover, the the resonance of this happiness, this well-being, you could call it a, embodied well-being. The result is a kind of inner spiritual confidence. Oh, knowing this makes this embodied life workable. Now, all the messiness in life, all the meanness in life, all the ambiguity and confusion in our lives, all of a sudden seems workable doesn't mean it's not the way it is. It's still the way it is. The world, the messiness, the ambiguity, confusion. But the mind has a way, just like a increasing, wise spaciousness that understands, yeah, and I'm not afraid of the world being the way that it is. That's the leftover. Because... Now the mind is at looking for the world to save me. The, the, <clears throat> by world, I mean sense experience. So like with our partners, we're not looking at our partner like, make me happy. <laughs> you know, that's a terrible thing to put on our partner or your pet. You know, make me happy. I'm feeling lousy. Make me happy. You know, or our food. You know, we get the food we want. Oh, make me happy. It can't, food can't make us happy. Our partners can't make us happy. Vacations don't make us happy. I mean, there's some pleasure in our partners, hanging out with our partners or pets or food or vacations or whatever. But that's pretty, that happiness we, the very real happiness, but it's a pretty ephemeral happiness we get from those worldly things. 
So I'm not saying that we're going to neglect them and we're not going to appreciate them when they come our way, but they don't satisfy the heart. What actually satisfies the heart in a meaningful way is the non-dependence and the non-attachment to the world. And that's what we get in the meditative journey. And it starts with learning the skill of seclusion, where we temporarily, it's not forever, you know, and it's good to tell yourself that because people will come to me and, and other Buddhist teachers and how can retreating from the world be the way? And it isn't the way. We retreat from the world because it teaches the heart something, like how to be in the world. <laughs> so there's something about putting everything down that teaches us how to pick everything up. But it's hard to believe that until you experiment with putting everything down. It's a little bit, you know, I haven't had a near-death experience. Well, maybe I have, but, you know, not maybe in the classical sense of, you know, a terrible accident where you, the mind detethers itself from the body. And in doing that, the mind has to let go of that embodied existence, right? Because that's part of that experience. In a, in a way, we do it every night with deep sleep, but we're just not consciously letting go. Because conveniently, when we slip into deep sleep, we're already unconscious, right? We're asleep. But there's something about consciously putting everything down that can give a new lease on life. So think about that when you sit down to sit. You know, even if you have just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you, you know, you do what you can to be comfortable, and then you have that intention. Working with your meditation object with the effort of being interested in it. Not focusing. Even the idea of focusing is a little too much. Because you're, you're not actually, there isn't a person who's bringing their attention to something. That's what we imagine, you know. I have to bring my attention to my breath, or to my body, or to hearing. No, no, no. Hearing is already being known. Feeling the body, sensing the sensations of the body, that's already being known in the mind. Feeling the breath is already being felt in the mind. We just have to remember. We have to keep it in mind. As a skillful means to put everything down, and not so we can feel the pleasure of that non-engagement with the diversity of experience. And then we integrate the anchor with the pleasure of that simplicity. And that's the anchor. And it just takes the mind deeper and deeper into stillness and silence. And that's not a place we're going to spend. It's just a place for some deep healing. When we come out of that place, we feel the resonance, the reverberation of having put everything down. And the other thing that's left over is just sensitivity. The mind, the heart is much more sensitive. We feel more. Having put things down, you know, one of the things about being overexposed and reactive is we're 
desensitized because it's too much to be sensitive. It's really hard to be sensitive without wisdom. So when we put it down, we're going to be even more sensitive that there's going to be a little bit more wisdom. And we're going to be more and more interested in what is the wisdom that allows me to be sensitive. Well, two things help to be really sensitive. Knowing that we can drop sensitivity really helps us to be sensitive. Like like even in the midst of a crazy day where just too much is happening, that I can connect with my breath exclusively so that I'm not aware of anything else for a breath just like the 15-20 seconds of breathing in. And then that makes it so much easier to be sensitive to everything that's coming and going when I know I can drop it. Or just feel your feet walking, you know? It's like we do this even semi-consciously, like we're having a terrible time in the office, and we mindfully walk to the bathroom, you know? And we're just in the physicality of walking and we just put it all down as opposed to worrying the whole stretch. Just put it down. Or we go outside and we fill the bird feeder. Or we, you know, do a little thing around the house. We wash the dishes. And we absorb into that and we put it down so we can pick it up in a fresh way. And then the other thing that a deeper wisdom is that you know one of the things about getting more and more familiar with samadhi that unification that stability that peace of a mind that's not fragmented is that the mind learns to recognize that stillness that silence that state of the mind being empty are being pushed around. So that even in the midst of worldly activity like me giving a talk, right, even here, which you know, this is a pretty engaged moment when you're in front of a group of people, even here, I because I've been practicing for a long time now, I can sense stillness. I can sense the end the mind that is empty of being pushed around, even though I do care what I'm seeing. I do care that what I'm saying makes sense. So it's not like I'm not engaged or I don't care. And that's a that's another thing that more frequent visitations to that place of samadhi, right? It starts to never go away. So even like if you were to trigger a lot of defensiveness in me or a lot of embarrassment or insecurity, right, which can happen, right? But there would be a sense of stillness, spaciousness, and something that is unmoved and unaffected, even as those unpleasant emotions get triggered and move through me. So those are the two ways that this practice really helps us in our real lives. Not just because we get a, you know, a 30 minute vacation when we do our formal sitting time, but it really affects how we are in the world. And we'll come back, I'll come back to this uh, for at least a few more weeks, but uh, we have about 10 or 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from other people in the room. And Nancy, 
um, Bowler, our, by the way, our longtime yoga teacher here at the center and our bookkeeper, and also volunteers as a program host. Thanks, Nancy. Has the handheld mic. Yeah, and any questions, any comments from your own experience, your practice experience that you want to share with the group? Yeah, what would you like to bring up? Anybody feel like getting us started? What comes to mind? Even testimonials like, what is your experience of seclusion or samadhi? Was it trustworthy? What was the reverberation as your mind returned to a more ordinary state of consciousness? Yeah, please. Yeah, but wait for the mic so we can all hear you. When you brought up the topic of feeling the shirt on our body, just thought of every toddler I've ever been around and how much more in tune they are often with their bodies and like if you ever have a toddler that didn't like a tag on their shirt you know the explosion that happens and like they can't not feel that and you're looking at them like what's wrong <laughs> but it just made me think of that like how often i've seen my own son like so in tune with his environment and it's something that i won't even notice like he'll notice just the smallest details on something that changed that i would have never so I don't know. I don't know if it's just tied to children being less popped down with things, but like, just Yeah, and wouldn't it be nice to not be afraid of that kind of sensitivity and exposure? And that's that's really where we want to go. Not to have to depend on seclusion, right? But to use it as a way of starting over, like a reset. Yeah, thanks for that. Who'd like to go next? Other thoughts, experiences, or questions that you have about what I've said? Always nice if you could share your names too. That's always helpful. And yeah, please. Uh, my name is Karen, and one thing I noticed. Um, and this is what's frustrating. Maybe this is like the, the child that has a tag or something and is very sensitive. So I'm not saying that adults are having any different kind of situation. It's, you know, when we focus, it's, it's so nice to like have to say, let's focus on our, our breath and, and you're there for a little while. And then all of a sudden I notice, oh my God, here's this, this very strong sensation in my left ankle. And, you know, my first instinct is like, I want this to go away. I want to get rid of it so that I can get back to focusing, or there's the focusing mm-hmm. or paying attention to, or um, that state where you're really just concentrating on, on the breath and, and trying to get back to that ordinary experience. But it seems like there's always something that is trying to pull you away from that. Yeah. And, um, if you had some more practical <laughs> advice as to what to do, or you know, don't get so wrapped up in it. Um, just let it be there. Um, but it can be very strong, especially when it's 
suddenly pain, you know, just a very strong <laughs> sensation that's trying to pull you out of the ordinary experience. Yeah, 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 no, I'm glad you brought that up, Karen. Because it's, remember what I said that uh, the side effect of samadhi is that we become more sensitive. And the thing about the present moment, it's actually in its essence, the present moment isn't fragmented. It's not like the experience of the breath is in one place and the experience of my leg is in a different place. Or the unresolved pain in my heart, emotional pain in my heart, is in a separate location. So when we practice being really intimate with the touching at the nostrils or feeling the whole body sitting, everything that can be felt, the mind is more sensitive to all of it. The only thing that's, in a sense, protecting us from the enormity of what we're exposed to is the interest on the meditation object. Otherwise, we feel everything. Like one of the things that happened, because a lot of us practice more of a what we call an open awareness style of practice, where we're not using a specific meditation object, like the breath or the whole body, but we're just letting, we're interested in being intimate, but we're just going to be present or intimate with whatever's predominant one moment at a time. So now this is being known, now this is being known. So when we sit, you know, it's kind of like an opening to the totality of the six sense gates, you know, whatever is predominant. And it can be like a tidal wave, like there's so much, because we've, in our lives, where our protection is distractedness, right? And only shiny objects get our attention and we ignore so much. And that's a lot of work, it's exhausting to be excluding so much of our experience. So then we sit down and we have the intention to be open, and it's like this tidal wave, like, oh, this is what the body feels like. This is how the heart is. These are the sounds in the room, you know? The room smells like this, and, you know, all this just comes rushing in because there's sensitivity. So remember, like, when you get a little continuity with your breath or your meditation object, if there's any wavering any deviation, then whatever is there, like in your bodily experience, is going to appear much bigger, much more vivid, because the concentration is stronger, right? The samadhi has started to develop, so the what makes an experience feel the way it feels isn't just the experience that's being known, it's the mind that's knowing the experience. So if that mind that's knowing the experience is really sensitive, then that experience is going to seem, appear, very vivid, very big in a sense, overwhelming even. It can get a little trippy, actually, in the sense that when you have some good continuity, some good momentum in your practice, then when the attention gets drawn to other things, it can feel like, whoa, you know, what did I do wrong? What just happened? Because it's so big that the experience of emotion, the experience of pain, or whatever it might be. Yeah, and it's kind of, uh, this happens especially on retreats. We call it, we even have a phrase for it, we call it yogi mind. 
right? And it just is a something that developed here in the West, meaning somebody's kind of having um, these distortions in their experience because of the concentration effect. The sensitivity is really out of balance with the wisdom. And so experience is seeming huge, and the wisdom doesn't know what to do with it. So they freak out. And there's a funny example that Jack Kornfield tells. But this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens. This is, uh, for a long time, uh, the Spirit Rock uh, organization in Northern California would use a retreat center in the desert near Palm Springs. And uh, it just so happened that one of the ways into the Los Angeles airport was over this retreat. I mean, they were still pretty high up, but you know, it was kind of a regular thing. Every certain number of minutes, another jet would fly by. And uh, somebody who had been practicing for several days and getting a lot of sensitivity wrote this desperate note to the teachers, you've got to call the people at Los Angeles International Airport and tell them to redirect the planes. But they, they weren't kidding. They was like thought that that would actually, you know, somebody would do that and that would actually have some effect on where the planes flew because of this sort of over, like it was like, it feels personal, they're just doing that to bother me or something crazy like that because the mind is really out of balance. It has a lot of sensitivity, but not much of that wise breadth of awareness that understands, oh yeah, this is how it is sometimes, you know. And so uh, we have to like remind ourselves, oh yeah, this experience in my leg seems really big. Like, I gotta do something. But it's almost like we're gonna call the bluff. Okay, that's what's happening. There's something that appears really big, really important, and it feels like this. Can I feel this? Can I just simply feel the enormity of what I'm feeling in my leg. And if I make peace with the feeling, do I need to do anything about it? So don't rush. Uh, sometimes we too quickly want to rush back to the anchor when it might be better, because by rushing back to the anchor, you're basically proving to the mind that that pain or that those sensations in your leg is a threat. Otherwise, why would you have to rush back to your anchor? So you're basically demonstrating that it's not a threat by taking a moment or a couple moments to be interested and to demonstrate to yourself that I can include this too. This is just, you know, whatever you want to call it, a distraction, something else being known. It feels like this. There's a strong desire to want to reject it, to want to fix it. That feels like this, right? This is too much, that's a thought, this is too much. And the feeling with that thought is like this. So we deconstruct it in that way, and we basic and we demonstrate to ourselves that I can be with this. I can be with this, I can open to this too. This can be included. Yeah, thanks Karen. Probably leave it here. Thanks everyone for coming. Just take a moment, let go of the words. Touch into a little of that coolness. I don't know if I remembered saying about that article, Nibbana for Everyone. 
the little piece of that that I mentioned that he said, oh, I left it out. <laughs> now I remember. The, the point I wanted to make about that is uh, he, he writes in that, that if we did touch into coolness every day, we wouldn't be able to stay alive. So whether we do it consciously or not, we have found our ways that coolness just means the non-attachment, the non-identification with sense experience. So we have to find ways, because if we're exposed and reactive all day long forever, it just wears down the heart, right? Kills us, basically. So now we're doing that, we're finding the coolness in a very wise, conscious way. Learning how to put it down so we can pick it back up. Anyway, you can check out the article for yourself. It's easy to find. If you have trouble, just contact me or the office, and we'll tell you where to find that link for that article. Nibbana for everyone. It's cool. Thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.